go ahead and get started in the interest of, of having enough time to go through presentations and also leave a fair amount of time at the end of today's session for, for questions. Um, welcome to our, our session. All the cool kids are doing it in as uh, local history and uh, as community engagement. And I want to congratulate you all on being cool kids for being here at 4 o'clock <laughs> in the afternoon <laughs> on a Friday. I'm going to go ahead. I've, I'm a roamer, so I'm going to go ahead and take this, this, um, this microphone and make sure. Can everyone in the back hear? Hear fine. Excellent. Um, so I'm going to spend a few minutes just kind of giving a little bit of background, and then I'm going to turn, uh, uh, turn the microphone over to my two colleagues here who are going to share a good bit of information with you this afternoon on the wonders of youth programming for community engagement. And um, uh, we have been doing it now for several years with our program that I'll introduce in just a moment. Um, and we're just really excited to talk to you about what the cool kids we've gotten to meet as part of this project have done. Um, it's really outstanding and they are making a remarkable difference in their communities by doing it. So I'm gonna jump right in and um, run through a quick PowerPoint. So who's here this afternoon? So I will point out my uh, my friends here as we're going ahead and doing this. To uh, uh, the, the first person here to to my left is Robin Guest. Robin is youth service super youth services supervisor for the Myersville, Maryland branch of the Frederick County Public Library System, uh, she, and she just opened a brand new library a couple of weeks ago. So. Thank you for being here in the midst <laughs> of, of a lot of crazy. Um, uh, Robin started working in public libraries in 1995 and has been working with youth of all ages for more than 20 years. Robin was a member of the volunteer board of the Brunswick Heritage Museum in Brunswick, Maryland, which is a small community history museum for four years, and she's gonna talk about those experiences this afternoon. My colleague uh, to Robin's left, Shannon Sullivan, uh, is, uh, is um, she went into the Youth Stories Yes program and handles youth programs at the, at the Smithsonian Institution Seven Exhibition Service in Washington, D.C. And Museum, uh, and Shannon works on the Museum on Main Street program just as I do. Shannon works on, sorry, I don't know how to use the space bar, sorry. Uh, Shannon worked at a history museum in the Rocky Mountains in multiple roles, including curator for seven years, and uses that experience to help encourage small museums uh, and organizations to develop innovative and inclusive projects. She's been working with Stories Yes since 2016 and is just doing a great deal of work building partnerships, uh, uh, collections and digital asset management, and integrating the humanities in really unconventional ways. She's a published author and uh, loves conducting research, and I'm proud to have her as a colleague. So thanks for being here this afternoon. And I'm a project director. My name is Robbie Davis for the museum, uh, the museum on Main Street program at the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service, or SITE. Uh, and uh, we're gonna use two acronyms throughout the rest of this program. Uh, and that's SITE for Smithsonian's Traveling Exhibition Service and MOMS for Museum on Main Street. We work in acronyms at the Smithsonian. We're very good at that. Um, and it just kind of makes life easier. I've been working in museums mystery organizations since 1993. And I've been at the Smithsonian for 17 years, most of that time with Museum on Main Street and um, working with small and rural museums. So I'm delighted to talk with you this afternoon. So. MOMS, Museum on Main Street, is a program with national reach. Uh, we have been now to all 50 states. We've got number 50 earlier this summer, which is really awesome. And we're celebrating our 25th anniversary next week, September 2nd, 1994, was our very first opening uh, in Moreland, Georgia, a town of about 400 people. And we just had our big 25th anniversary celebration last weekend in Thomaston, Georgia, which is about 40 miles away. Thank you. 
Thomaston, Georgia. It's about an hour and a half south of Atlanta, and a really great town uh, that pulled out all the stops for us, which was really cool. Uh, more than 1,600 communities in the country have taken part in the program uh, and uh, are really, they, they rock. They're cool kids, too, which is, uh, is really a lot of fun. Museum on Main Street is a special program. It is a humanity partnership between the Smithsonian and State Humanities Council. So it's a national, state, and local partnership. Um, we call it a three-legged stool. If you took any one of those legs away, well, the whole, just whole thing would just kind of topple. But what it does is it equals maximum engagement. And uh, I'm going to point out the photo here. Um, this is a great photo because it's got state, local, and national partners in it, but you can't tell who they are. They are all helping to put the exhibition together. And that's kind of how this project works. Um, we throw a whole bunch of people into the mix, and um, they all work together towards a common goal. It, had, it has always been a grassroots project, really built on community involvement and engagement. Uh, it's all about their places, their localities. The Smithsonian is a great brand and a great name to put on the project, but it's really local stories that matter and really push the pu drive the project forward. So what happens? So they get a lovely exhibition from us, and we love our exhibitions, don't get me wrong. They're fantastic. This is our Crossroads exhibition, and this is from our opening in Thomaston, Georgia, just last weekend. And about 87% of our venues see increased attendance. So imagine a town of 8,000 people having 400 people go through an exhibition in a single hour, and that's what happened in Thomaston. Uh, so it was really awesome. Uh, we had the streets blocked off. We kept blocking more streets. It was, it was really cool. Um, but what actually ends up happening is this. Thomaston did a lot of work on local exhibitions and local research, scanning photographs, uh, talking to people. And what actually happened was all the people spent their time on the periphery of the room. They were looking at their stuff, and that's what actually matters. I love my shows, but to be honest with you, that's what I actually love to see. And that's where that 95% figure, people keep coming back. They get long-term long impact uh, from people learning what cultural organizations in their communities actually have uh, and going back time and time again and making sure that they take advantage of that resource. That's the engagement that we really want to see happen, and that's what we'll talk about this afternoon. Museum on Main Street, uh, again, is all centered around community engagement. We're going to talk about quadrants, the, the uh, kind of the, the, the uh, northeastern quadrant there, Stories from Main Street, which is an umbrella for programs that we do with the Museum on Main Street. We are primarily an exhibitions program, but we've gotten involved in story over the past eight years. And um, uh, everything we're going to talk about this afternoon kind of emanates from that. Uh, so I'm going to jump real quick over to talk about Stories from Main Street, which is a platform and distribution channel on our website at museumonmainstreet.org um, that encourages story recording in rural places. Um, we're all about the distribution and sharing of those stories. We provide resources. We work with partners across the country. We try to encourage these story collection projects in the rural communities that take our exhibition. Um, our goal ultimately is to connect local history to the national scope of our exhibition. One of the things we hear in a lot of our communities is, well, we don't really have a story. It doesn't really matter. Well, that drives us crazy. We actually know that those stories matter, uh, and we want to elevate them. We want to amplify them and get them out there more. And so all of the projects we do from our exhibitions to our digital projects are really designed uh, to do that. And finally, I'm going to close by briefly introducing our Stories Yes project. Yes stands for Youth Engagement and Skill Building. It's a grant-supported project that we've been doing. Youth en Yes stands for Youth Engagement and Skill Building. 
uh, and has been around since 2012. Uh, it's a project that's grant supported through an internal Smithsonian fund. Um, and it basically involves partnerships at the local level. We're able to put a little bit of money into the communities that we work with. These have traditionally been communities that were hosting our exhibitions at the same time. Um, and it offers students a chance to go out and really become uh, the agents for research in those communities. They work with local cultural groups to do research. Uh, they do interviews. They do primary research. But they use their local museum as the center for doing that. So they learn that their local museum is a resource. They learn that that historical organization has the most amazing stuff. Um, and then they keep coming back. They bring their parents. Um, and it all becomes a bigger community engagement project for that organization. Uh, but at the same time, they're also connecting the past to the present. They really dig deep into local issues and pull out the information that's going to amplify that locally. And we're going to talk more about that as we look at some of our examples. So with that, I am going to disappear and pull this cable out <laughs> and plug it into Robin's computer. And I'm going to head back. So just a little background um, before I show you um, the project that the Change in My Community did. I'm sorry, I'm a little talker, so I'll try to be close to the microphone. So in 2016, the Brunswick Heritage Museum and the Brunswick Library um, applied to host the Wayne West exhibit through MAM. Um, at that time, I was working at the Brunswick Library as student services supervisor and was on the volunteer board of the museum. So it was a really good way for me to combine um, those things and um, make sure that we were able to produce um, a, a, an exhibit that was going to be um, you know, really focused on our community. Um, the great thing about this partnership is, of course, the museum had um, you know, the local level history and I at the uh, library had um, programming experience and access to youth, which is the trick when you're trying to do this kind of a project is finding ways to be able to do it. So if you are ever looking for a really good project partner, the local library is the way to go because they do have a lot of experience <coughs> and that access. So this movie um, is part was part of the local exhibit then that we had that really focused on Brunswick. So um, you know, rather than focusing on you know Brunswick history as a whole, we really narrowed the focus to uh, work in Brunswick and how it was affected by the railroad um, and then the railroad leaving town. So we're going to go ahead and show you the movie, and then I'm going to give you um, some information about you know why this project was important, maybe the nuts and bolts of how it went about, and then how you can replicate it whether or not, you know, if we receive um, a grant to create this project, that it is something that can be replicated with what you have on hand um, without a grant. So I'm going to just go ahead and give this a watch.
teams that work on the project and the and there's my children's librarian that helped on the project too. So that as you can see is a pretty awesome and that is thanks to this person up on the screen. His name is Glenn. <laughs> he was a substitute for the library assistant when we were working on this project. He was a camera guy for a news channel in Baltimore. So he helped the kids learn how to use the technology. He also helped in the video editing part of this. So that's why you see a pretty high quality project here. So they, the kids did, I mean, they did all kinds of research. Yeah. So 
you know, they, they researched the history, they visited the museum. We have a photograph collection at the Brunswick Library that was, um, I think you, they mentioned my, the Kaplan department store in here. Meyer Kaplan was one of the owners of the family that owned the very large department store, but he was also an amateur photographer and he had, we have a collection that was over 2,500 photographs that he took over the span of a few decades. So a lot of the still photos that you see um, in this were part of that photograph collection. So the teams um, researched, you know, the story of Rose Jafari and the photographs that they would need to supplement the video and the interviews that are in here. Um, they developed all of the interview questions. They identified the interviewees. They um, decided where everything would be filmed. They did all took turns um, doing the filming and the video editing. So there was a group of let me see if it'll there might be a picture here at the end that has the oops nope I I thought there was a picture with the whole group oh there it is yeah so there's uh, most of the group of teams so they all took turns doing all of the jobs on this so they could learn all of those various skills. That that was really a big part of this project. So not only did we want to supplement the the national story that we were getting from the mom's exhibit um, with our local, but we you know wanted to have a, an opportunity for youth to really connect with our local stories, and then also build on all of those skills that they could by using this technology and creating this, and then be really proud of the project that they had. We had a red carpet event. For them, so we actually had, had like an actual red carpet arena with each of the teams, and they had their um, pictures taken by the paparazzi. Um, and then we had, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then we had, you know, the the first showing of the movie at the library, and then the movie showed on loop at the museum. It's actually still being shown on loop at the museum, and it's been two years. And we also showed it um, continuously at the library during the time of the exhibit. So I think they were, you know, they were very proud. We had a lot of, you know, they brought their families to the event. Um, they were at the grand opening of the exhibit, you know, they visited. So they were, you know, definitely had a connection um, to the town that I don't think they had before. Um, none of the children that are in this picture, you know, there are a lot of people in Brunswick who have lived here for generations, like generations. They are five and three Brunswickians. None of these children are. You know, they are all, you know, their parents moved to town, they're all very new. So it really provided them a connection to town that they did not have before. And I think hopefully made them um, proud of their town as well. So, and then, uh, you know, another big part of why this project was important was collaboration. So the collaboration between the museum and the library and then all of these different businesses, um, you know, the different organizations that we have in town really helped. It's a very critical component to one of these kinds of projects is just to find those people that are local and in your community who have, I mean, there's so many people, there's the film that we didn't even put in here, but there's these people that have just all of this information who are just very, very happy to share it with you in, you know, whatever form that, that you know, they can or want to ask them to do that. Um, let's see. So we did, since we did receive a grant, we did, we were able to purchase with some very nice equipment and we purchased a, you know, a camera um, and some the video editing software. We just, you know, just bought a few months of the Adobe software for them to use. Um, You know, so we were able to get some things, but there is a way that you can replicate these kinds of projects without having 
you know, the gadget that you might have as a backup so you can use, you know, your iPhone and there's video editing software that is freely available. But the most important part is really finding, you know, partnerships and collaborations and the right people. Like we have Vlad, which was not something that we had at the beginning of the project, but then he was hired on and we found out that he had a lot of these skills. So then we were able to use those skills. There is always someone in your community who has something that you can use to pull in for these kinds of projects. And you can also, you know, start small. Don't think that you have to, like, this is, a again, a very narrow topic. Um, there's you can either focus on a person or a topic or a place or a building or something. It doesn't have to be like the history of your town from this day in such and such month. I think that it can be very small, but it, it has to be, it's, it needs to be personal. It needs to be relevant and it needs to be relatable. And any of those things, you know, that you can have in your town are, are that. If there's, you know, like a, a favorite, you know, spot where everybody likes to go to a park or that's named after someone, you can start posting that. You know, like there's just you know, so much, so much available, so many things. You know, and really anyone can do this. You don't need all of that fancy equipment to do it. Um, I do know that at the museum, um, we since we have the exhibit, when we do have an exhibit like this, you get a lot of people who volunteer, and there's families volunteers, and one of those people that um, started volunteering when we had the exhibit is still volunteering at the museum and planned to do some kind of um, a similar project. Um, he's an older gentleman who's retired, but he wanted to do a similar project around baseball incentives. Baseball games incentives, when they were big, big, big. <laughs> so, you know, so there are all those things that you can find and people that you can find in your area that are really passionate about certain topics. Model railroading is also a very big project. <laughs> uh, like the whole first floor of our museum is a model of the railroad from um, Union Station to Harper's Ferry. It's a very realistic, it's really cool. And there are, there's this little army of um, gentlemen who take care of it who are very passionate about model railroading. So, I mean, there's always something that you can find, that topic, that thing, or th and that person. So you don't have to do it alone. You know, you can find the people, find the partnerships. Um, if you want that youth engagement, look to your library, look to your schools, look to different scouting groups, because those are the people that have not only access to the youth, but um, experience working with them. You know, they want to, they, they know how to relate to teens and work with teens, and um, technology, you know, well, the, the teens know how to use all the technology, too, because they're uncomfortable with that. They can teach you how to do that. So in my new library, we just got a Nintendo Switch, so one of the librarians from came in and taught us all how to use it. It was awesome. So, you know, you can, you can find, you can find them. They will, you know, if you, if you look, if you look hard, you can find them. I think that's everything I had to say about that. So now we're going to turn it over to Sheila.
working so smoothly. <laughs> Better than my last one already. Um, so as Robin said, this is something that is sort of a recipe. It requires um, a glen, and every community, believe it or not, has a glen. You can find them in the strangest places. Um, but I want to uh, talk a little bit about sort of the philosophy behind this project. As you can see, there are a number of ways that the final product is used uh, by all of our communities that have participated. Um, we've been doing this for about eight years now. And we've really, I think, hit upon a formula that is designed to improve community engagement and promote young voices with disabilities. The cost of technology, as Robin mentioned, um, has actually really come down, and that's one main reason why we feel like we're ready to share this with the world. It's not really about the cost of technology anymore. Um, there are all kinds of different ways people are doing digital stories. I mean, it's something of a buzzword. You probably have heard of a million different kinds of projects already. Uh, sometimes people will just use cell phones. There's um, a new digital story program at University of North Carolina that I heard about two days ago, and they're using smartphones and a $15 phone app for the entire course. I think the, the key to this project, though, is finding those, those partnerships, and sometimes they will have resources, and they might be able to sh share equipment, and that is particularly true of libraries and school media centers, and the key is just really making sure you find that, that usually one individual who can help you get that in with your organization to make it work. And I want to go back to what Robbie said, too, about our Stories from Main Street website. That's really something that gets the interest of potential partners, that your stories that students create can wind up on a Smithsonian website. That's really cool. And we have all of these tools available. So it's kind of a one-stop shop to help create these digital story projects and be involved with the Smithsonian. And combining history with technology, no matter how simple the tech is, is something that is appealing to you. So once you figure out kind of the adults and who you're going to work with, it's, it's pretty simple to get the kids intrigued. And it's also a little less intimidating for organizations because they really handle the tech side. They are not afraid to figure it out, even if they don't know at the beginning. And I know Glenn was crucial in Brunswick to kind of guiding the adults as much as anything, right? <laughs> uh, the kids really took it and ran with it and figured everything out as they were going. Um, and something else that Robin mentioned, projects like this really can help reduce anxiety in young people. There's research showing this now and improve mental health. And I think there's nobody better almost than history organizations to take part in this and sort of drive projects like this and bring partnerships together that can help with things like technology. And I do want to say really quickly, this is the link to our digital story resource page at the bottom, but I'm going to show it on several of these slides. And you can always go directly to our website, museumonmainstreet.org, and find it. And um, I'll have more information about what's available on there in a minute. But and I also want to point out just the, the list of the ways that the stories can be used. You really want to think about that over the course of the project because 
this is not something that's just done potentially. It can, can live on. I mean, you're going to have digital content for one thing, but also it's a project that can keep going. Like Robin said, baseball projects might be coming alive in Brunswick. And a lot of organizations use this as a, a jumping off point to really develop their youth audience and continue doing more things. They get involved with National History Day if they weren't before or um, other things like that. I'm going to show a few other examples just so you get a good sense of um, the variety of stories that are available that other communities have done. And one of our themes I just want to highlight really quick is about community crossroads and change. And I think Brunswick falls into that category. We are actively collecting stories about that. And we provide prompts and kind of guidance. But if you've been hearing any of the sites of conscious people talk, it's about commu creating community dialogues and want our kids to be part of that. And they really drive the projects. They will find your topics. You might need to guide them and get them started. But as you'll see in these examples, they're the ones that find your projects.
my favorite things about that story is that you can tell kind of starts off it's a personal story it's about her and her feelings towards her town um, but it grows from there and she talks to the town mayor and he puts her in contact with the guy who's an expert on small towns and so this story became much broader and relatable I think for people outside of her community and she just did a wonderful job in terms of talking to many, many people. And stories don't have to be like that. We've got many that are really wonderful, more on the oral history end of the spectrum. But I think for this particular project, interviewing a lot of people is, is key to making it work out well because kids need to learn how to talk to adults, for one thing. Um, but also that's part of the community engagement process. Everybody that gets interviewed becomes invested in the project and they'll show up at the premiere at the end and they'll be connected to the museum or the histor historical society or whatever kind of organization in a totally new way. So these are kind of the big broad ideas that are part of this project. Again, there's the link to our, our resources page. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how complicated is this project really, and I'm going to say something totally crazy and heretical, but I don't think of it as a technology project anymore because the technology is so accessible now and has become so widely available. You can build partnerships with media centers or even businesses that might have equipment and that kind of thing, but it's also not required. There are so many ways to get around that. If you've got an audio recorder, you can record interviews with it and then add photos using freely available software on top of that. Um, and actually, again, on our resources, we do have suggested equipment and things that other groups have used and um, other recommendations about that. So I'm not going to go too much into it. The picture on the left, other than the smartphone, it's a mic and a tripod. It costs $35 and a free app. So that's one, one way to go about it. It's really not about complicated equipment. It's about everything else that happens with the process and making a complex story come out of it. It doesn't actually take a lot of expense. Um, however, I will say that, again, the partnerships are crucial. You'll see kind of in the middle there, it says interview, research, narrative, production values. And that's kind of like a really quick way of saying you do a lot with the kids. This is the entire project. But the strength is that you can have a journalist come in and talk to them about doing interviews with people. You can have the historian come in, or you are the historian, and you're telling them about how to conduct primary research and so on. Um, videographer, whoever you can find, your Glenn in your community. Um, everybody has figured that out, which I know can sound intimidating, but absolutely everybody out of our 70 communities that I've worked with has figured that part out. Um, and the other thing I want to say, again, on our resources page, and I'm going to talk a little bit at the end about this, but we've got um, online training modules now that go through all of the kind of skills training for the kids that includes that interviewing and research. And Learning Lab is really cool because it's interactive and adaptable. You can take everything that we've got on there and you can change it and make it your own. You can add resources from your own community. Um, it's, it's pretty awesome and has made this project way more accessible and simplified. And like we talked about, I think it's very important to have some kind of a premiere event. 
to acknowledge what the kids have done, and that's another excuse to bring back all the partnerships, all the people who were interviewed, and really celebrate this as a community project. And think long-term about it, too. Um, it's not going to be something that has to go away, especially once you've got all that excitement in the community. And it, like I said, it can grow into some other kinds of things. Kids wind up um, sending their documentaries to film festivals and winning prizes. Um, there's a lot of attention that can come out of this. And I also want to mention really quickly, because we are a bunch of history people, um, this really isn't about vetting the content that kids create, although it's, it's possible to kind of, as several of these projects do, like Brunswick, they interview so many different people, they're getting a lot of perspectives. So it's not like they're, they're only going to tell one side in, in those instances. But this project is really about breaking down the barriers to history and letting kids know that it's accessible to them and building their interest in the humanities because they are going to be the future adult officers for our organization. They've become volunteers of these organizations. They've applied for jobs. And... Um, I do want to say that there are actually usually, it follows the partnerships and the interviewees and parents, there's usually more adults involved in this project than there are kids in communities. And um, some really cool things that have come out of that include in Oklahoma a few months ago, somebody who helped with the project then became connected to the museum and she joined their board. So just interesting things happen that you don't even imagine at this level. All right, I'm gonna share more stories. So we have another um, topic that we'll keep collecting stories on our website right now, and it's water, huge topic. So um, that can cover pretty much anything. This story is from Mississippi. Thank you. 
this project was done by um, the Rosedale Freedom Project, which is an after-school program. And um, their Glen was, they have a young staff, so their staff was their Glen. And then the kids took it over, um, an eighth grader and a ninth grader made this video. And my favorite thing about it is that there's not a lot of research I noticed in this story. There are very low literacy levels in this area, so the, the Rosedale Freedom Project had the kids focus on interviewing, and they discovered that they were great at it. They that last interview with the farmer, I think, is very powerful. He says to the kids interviewing him, don't become a farmer. And that's really, this is a water story I said at the beginning, and it's about the port, but it's really also a community story, and they're finding out something about their community that is perhaps a, a kind of a hard story. All right, this one is another water story, and it's um, about severe flooding in Ellicott City, Maryland. This one um, was done um, as a collaboration between two history organizations and a high school new classroom.
for those of you that know Ellicott City, that's um, an incredibly controversial and really tough story that that community's been going through for the past several years. And um, one thing that we've heard from participants in this project, 71% say that these projects help bring people together or bridge conversations about delicate or complex topics. Ellicott City is the epitome of that. You can hear the emotion particularly in the, the last woman's interview. This is something that I think the fact that it was students involved in it made it easier for the community to come together and talk to instead of, I mean, you read newspaper articles about it and they're all yelling at each other and it's a really, really hard topic. But having kids involved kind of changes the equation and makes it something that's, that's more reasonable than they can actually have a dialogue about it. I also want to highlight, I don't know if anybody noticed in that story, but many of the interviews took place in the History Museum. And um, I love that that's, that was the touch point for many of the people who came in to interview and they were all very connected to the History Museum for the project because of that. So really bringing adults and young people together is the crux of this project and developing that intergenerational communication. Um, that's something that I think history organizations know something about and they almost know better than anybody else how to connect people and how to have older people to get involved with their organization. You bring kids into the mix and that really can have some unique results. Okay, one more time our resources room. And we've got program planning tools on there. We've got timelines, workshop ideas, equipment lists I mentioned already. Um, we've got a rubric, short characteristics of good stories if you actually wanna kind of let students know what you're looking for ahead of time or, or grade them. We do not do that, but um, it's available. And then we've got the skills training portion and we have a story field guide, which is a PDF you can print out, but our um, learning lab training modules I mentioned earlier are, there are six of them and they're all available on our website. And they go through those kind of four areas I was talking about earlier of interviewing and um, research, conducting primary research and so on. And they have been, we've tested them in, in classrooms and have heard such great things from teachers and students alike. And as I said, those can be edited and changed and you can do whatever you want to them, but they're just, they're just a really cool thing. I'm not connected to the internet. So I am not going to click on that link and show you what they look like, but they're a fabulous resource. So I just wanna show, well, I, I've talked enough. I'm not gonna show you one more thing, but um, just to help you get started, I think it's as simple as picking up the phone and calling somebody, call a teacher or your local library or another organization and keep an open mind about how you can collaborate with them and how you can make something like this work for everybody. Um, because that's what we see is that it's a really powerful tool for so in so many ways. It's, it helps the kids, but it's also important for organizations. So we're gonna open it up for questions. Go ahead. Yes, ma'am.
So for, for anyone who couldn't hear, the question was, have we seen connections between our project and some of the things that are happening at the local level and national historical sites? Yes. Um, <laughs> that it's, it's been something that a lot of organizations have aspired to, and many of them have, have kind of set out to start there, and it, it seems like it's a really hard place to start. So I really advocate kind of starting small, and it's something once you've got an actual story in your hands, you can show them how amazing it is, and then it grows into national history. It is. So that's more what's been happening, is that they, they aspire to that, and it's grown into collaborations with whoever is doing the local his national history work. The question here, yeah, is how do how do communities deal with diversity in, in these projects? Thank you. So what steps do we take to kind of guide that process? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean in our case, you know, we're we're a library, so we're not teachers. We you know, there's there's um, we want to give the teens as much freedom in the project as they possibly can have, but then we're also constrained by who's available and who um, is willing to intervene. And, and so, in you know, in some cases, there just might not be that person that we would be able to talk to available um, in in the more diverse population. And I think you know, in this in this case, I think that's probably what happened is that um, you know the the people who were available were maybe not as diverse as they could have been. But at the same time, we, we wanted to give the teens pretty much, they were in control of the, the, the project. We um, you know, gave them the resources that they needed to be able to, to do something within the constraints of time and, and availability of people. And if I can add, we've, we've seen different approaches in different communities, and, and you can piggyback on there. Um, in some communities, um, uh, the, 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 um, the local history museum has kind of grabbed the reins and selected the people that the students are going to be interviewing, so we've seen that approach. Uh, then in others, um, like Lanesboro, they really just kind of let the students say, you know, this is where I think the story's gonna take me, and you know, I'm almost gonna be a journalist and kind of go wherever this story takes me. Uh, so we've seen we've seen each of those different approaches, and um, uh, they they sometimes pay off in really unique ways, and sometimes it's a little harder for the students to uncover, you know, where all of those diversities are coming from. And just to add on to that, I think that's the goal of many organizations when they start their projects. I think the the trouble is that they're working on building that trust and that inclusiveness, and I think this might, in some cases, be a first step. Yeah. They they've certainly in many communities had scheduling issues, which was already mentioned. Um, if people don't have the time, those are folks often are retired, and they actually can come and interview a little bit. Um, but 
there's also been kind of more controversial, like, no, I'm not going to, this is what you're doing, I'm not going to participate in that. But I think the strength is that once a project is finished, you can see how level-headed and even-handed it is because the organization works closely with the students to make it that way. Not direct yeah. them, but make it something that's that's not biased or anything like that. And I He mentioned doing a phase two and, and following up. And that's why I say think long term, because we're reporting on the first time this project is done in these communities. And one thing we're looking at now is following up. What else have you done? Because that's the idea. This leaves a footprint in the community. We, we can keep going and work more on that inclusion and getting better at reaching other audiences that maybe didn't trust the organization. So um, several of the the kids were our patrons. So we live in a um, like a neighborhood. So several of the kids that and the kids are live nearby and are in the library all the time, coming to our teen programs. Others were Miss um, Caroline, who was the the um, librarian who worked largely worked with them. You know, just said, hey, you know, we have this project that's coming up. Are you interested in working on it? And so then, you know, she, a few of the kids were not regular library patrons who started down on, on the project. Um, but we did not, like, handpick. You know, it was more of a, hey, we're doing this thing. Are you interested in being part of it? And we had, I think, 11 teens um, who definitely were part of it. Um, majority of them were homeschooled. Um, the project actually started before we knew we were going to have the grant. I mean, this is something that was going to be part of the exhibit even before. And um, so <laughs> a lot of research went into the project because we were waiting to hear whether or not we got the grant. So those, those kids were really well researched. Um, they researched for literally months. I mean, the poor things. They just really wanted to do something. Thank you for coming in the longer. <laughs> the equipment will be here soon. <laughs> um, but this, so this was really a month-long project, I think, kind of because of that. It could have gone at a much faster pace. But we started in the fall, and the final project, um, our red carpet premiere, was in July. So it was, it was pretty extended. Um, but they weren't working on it necessarily every day. Um, so sometimes they would work on it, you know, like once a week. They would interview somebody, and then somebody else would come in and do the editing. And then, you know, we, um, I think we actually did have somebody we professionally captioned it, the teens didn't caption it for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that, I mean, that is essentially something that we could do too. So it was not a quick project, but it could have, it could have been faster. And, and just to tag on to that, we have um, the timeline online that's available. There's a three-week example or a nine-month example. <laughs> And everybody has done that and anywhere in between. Um, and the question about after school or um, in school extracurricular, again, it's been done always. I think one of the, the strengths of having a library partner is that they have an existing program 
that certainly makes it easier to get everything going and get more kids involved. The Lanesboro project was completely extracurricular. There were only three students involved, but they produced some really impressive um, films, short films, and uh, the, the I think that the fact that there were only three students involved meant that there were just resources funneled to them, huge, gigantic resources, and they had so much help to complete it. that it's easy to be connected to the kids. That is also a tricky piece of it. Um, and, and we had an example in South Carolina a couple years ago where the project was set to go and the school closed. So they pretty much lost their access to kids. And um, in that case, it, it was a real scramble. They had to try really hard and their project became much, much smaller. But that's what I'm saying is that it's a start and these are kind of starting things and they recorded a, a wonderful oral history with um, an African-American woman who was one of the World War II veterans and so it was a small project much smaller than they'd anticipated 
but it was the starting place and they are repeating the process of where we went a couple weeks ago and their rate has just really gone up and, and keep going from there and they figured they, they have new partnerships now and they have other ways that they're going to access students and they're not going to rely on um, a program that went defunct when they created it. Budget, how much? <laughs> um, so, traditionally, like I said, the, the cost of the equipment is, is has come down so much that honestly, the, the grant, when it has been awarded in the past, it started to become a problem to spend all of the money that's there for technology. So, um, that part is truly not a concern. We have, in the past, provided very tiny stipends for kind of the, the project manager um, and potentially the Glenn or a teacher or somebody else who's involved. Um, that part is tricky, I would say, but like I said, there's such small amounts what we've been providing. I think the thing that really attracts people is the idea that this is lined up on the Smithsonian website. And so as far as funding goes, they're, they're fairly low cost, but they are definitely um, they require a ton of manpower, and they can be they can be less manpower, but there is just a certain amount of planning and organizing that definitely goes into place, um, and that's why it's hard to get the project off the ground initially. But I guess my argument is that it's really well worth it to put in that effort and figure it out because you're building your audience, and you are getting them to learn how to do oral history and to help out with other aspects of your organization. So it's well worth the commitment that it does take. But I would add to that, the top dollar that's usually low is sometimes the Zoom because it's just so much um, adult time being put into the project. People like Robin at the local level, um, other volunteers who kind of jump on board. That's where we see the budget really rise. Is, is on that portion of it. But in terms of cash outlay, it's actually relatively minimal. Question in the back, yes ma'am. Thank you. 
that's an absolutely fantastic point. And uh, just to reiterate that, yes, being diverse in how you select the students who are going to be part of the project, I think, is incredibly important too. And um, and and in learning styles, in the way that they approach things, absolutely, that that's an incredibly great point. Um, and opening that up to as many students as possible is also really important. And we encourage the participants in our program to do that. Um, and uh, we hope that they'll continue to, to give that a try. Any other questions? Yeah, I, I just yeah. want to add on to that too, because we've had a number of organizations that that's their goal when yeah. they start, that that is what they want to do. And it doesn't always go that smoothly because it is the kids who are in FFA and 4-H and have other um, parents pushing them to do certain extracurricular activities. But that's one reason why I advocate for long-term because this is a project that can grow into more areas, serve more kids, particularly at-risk youth. That's definitely a target area for this project. Any other questions? Well, we want to thank you. It is. It's uh, 5.15, so I uh, so want to thank you all for coming on a Friday afternoon. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. If we can provide any additional information, please come talk to us, and uh, we would uh, love to perhaps have the opportunity to work with you in the future, and we hope you have a great evening. And Thanks. use my email. I'm available. Yeah. I have all of these ideas from other organizations and community centers. Great. <laughs> thank you. Thank have you. a good evening. Oh, and please uh, bring up your, your evaluations or leave them on a chair at the back and we'll pick them up and turn them into ASLH. Thank you so much.